Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Asia Town Voice. Asia Town Voice is an hour-long nonprofit program on WJCU's 88.7 FM radio. We're on every Sunday from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. This hour-long program provides an inside look at the Asian Pacific Americans community, their culture, education, and events that they have going on in Northeast Ohio. Asia Town Voice is volunteer-based, and we hope that the listeners will enjoy our program and give their support to WJCU. This way, we can continue to provide many voices with many choices to you. And good evening again. My name is Yin. I'm here with Johnny Wu. Hello. He's sick, so he won't be talking very much today. Yep. <laughs> and uh, Michael Vuon from Asian Services in Action. Hi, everyone. So,、uh, can you tell us a little bit about Asia Services in Action? When it was founded?、Uh, why it was founded? Yeah, Asian Services in Action was founded in 1995 by four Asian immigrant women.、Mm-hmm. Um, one of the leaders of that group was a woman named Mei Chen,、mm-hmm. who realized in the community that there were some major challenges that our Asian people were having, especially those who were newly arriving,、mm-hmm. who、um, are immigrants. And f-、um, through her work, initial work with the other women,、uh, they established a community health fair and. Brought a tremendous amount of、um, support from the community, and from that they realized there's a, a need for broader services and programs for the Asian population here in northeastern Ohio. Now, these founders were they doctors themselves? So these founders、um, were again women、um, who had various career or professional backgrounds,、um, not necessarily in the medical field, but、um, they just had this tremendous compassion and interest to. Do well for the Asian community,、um, and what are the unique challenges with the Asian community, especially those who are newly arriving? As an immigrant,、um, you are not eligible to access any of the public services、oh, wow. that are available.、Um, there is a five-year bar,、um, waiting bar for immigrants, and so in the area around healthcare,、um, they, if they are not working. They're in a unique challenge in、um, accessing critical health care, especially if there's an emergency. Right. So、um, that brings me to the next question. It, it,、uh, you guys are opening a new health clinic in Asia's、uh, Asian Town Center. Yes,、um, it's a wonderful、um, project and and is receiving a tremendous amount of support from the community, especially from our medical community, our physicians, our Nurses and other professionals.、Um, the reason why we are creating the International Community Health Center in Asia Town is that we have been documenting over the last couple years、um, challenges with our communities in accessing the healthcare services in this area.、Um, we have identified、uh, many stories where individuals are delaying、um, healthcare services to. Um, take a chartered bus to New York City,、yeah. um, where there are culturally and linguistically specific healthcare services available,、mm-hmm. and we felt that this is a major problem.、Um, we need to, as a community, be able to support the healthcare needs of this population, so that they can be important contributors to the local economy and help to build businesses and jobs.、Mm-hmm. That actually reminds me of a story.、Um, it was very, it went viral for a while online. It was called the Sad Panda Story,、mm-hmm. and it was a、uh, Girl who went to university somewhere in New York City, yeah, and there was a this panda. He's just a, a man dressed as a panda who would wander around. I think it was Wall Street, right?、Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the story? I, very, very vaguely, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and as it turns out, this old man, he, he was an older man, and he had, um, his mother passed away, so he went back to, I think it was Canton, mm-hmm. or was it Taiwan? I can't mm-hmm. remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he came back, you know, he knew his boss didn't want to fire him because he felt bad, but so he left his job, and there's nothing else he could do but wear a panda costume. And one of the comments that was most startling was how he doesn't use the healthcare service here because it costs thousands of dollars, but then it was only a couple hundred dollars to fly to you know, uh, somewhere in Asia, I think it was Canton, I think it was Canton, mm-hmm. you know, because it was only a couple hundred dollars to see a healthcare professional there, and he wouldn't have trouble explaining his ailments. Yeah. I think that was probably the most important point. Um, so wh- what made you, what inspired uh, Asia Services in Action to actually establish this new health clinic? So again, um, we were hearing from the community the challenges with accessing local healthcare services, and so mm-hmm. we felt that it, our duty, our responsibility as a community-based organization, to to address it. And um, as I mentioned earlier, we've received so much support from the community, and mm-hmm. they recognize that there is a portion of our population, a good portion of our population, where healthcare access is a major challenge. Um, one of the things that's interesting in what you, your comment about the panda situation, the man dressed as panda in New York City, mm-hmm. is that um, his story kind of falls within this context of healthcare reform and Obamacare, um, and that um, there's a major challenge in terms of affordable affordable health care mm-hmm. in our in our country mm-hmm. and so as part of the Affordable Care Act there's been efforts to to provide expansion of services especially to those who are low income and I think that um, it is our responsibility in the United States we have high quality health care system even in our backyards here with um, a, a number of health systems in this area, but um, also in general in this in this country, we have um, high-quality health care, but the challenge is that the cost is spiraling mm-hmm. out of control, and hopefully with the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, um, we'll be able to address some of the things, especially like the concerns that the individual had, that panda guy. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I guess that brings me to the next w- next question is um, at this new health clinic, who qualifies? Do you have to be uh, an immigrant worker or can it just be anybody off the streets? Or? So our health center will open as a charitable clinic. That means is that okay. we are open to anyone who, who is in need. And historically, our organization, while we are called Asian Services in Action, we have um, over 13% of our population that are non-Asian who come to us for services. And so we do not deny services based on race, ethnicity, or other backgrounds. Mm -hmm. But in fact, in in many cases, we reach out actively. And so in this instance with the charitable clinic based here in the Asiatown, um, Cleveland area, we want to make sure that the neighborhoods um, Residents, Mm -hmm. which include Asian and non-Asian people, have access to quality care. And what we're also offering in order to make it accessible is that we're offering those services as a sliding scale um, program. And um, we are not going to be denying services based on inability to pay. Okay. That, wow, that sounds amazing. Because my other question before the sliding scale comment is, what happens if a millionaire walks in? <laughs> <laughs> Again, you know, I think that in, in principle, our organization is um, blind to the economics of, you know, an individual. We're mm-hmm. there to provide services mm-hmm. to everyone. Right. 
Um, so do you have volunteer doctors or how does it how does it work or are you, you allowed to discuss this? <laughs> you know, it's been really wonderful in terms of the tremendous support from the community. We have physicians that are coming out of the woodwork. They're formerly re- they're retired. They mm-hmm. were physicians in different practices or working with health systems. There are also current providers that are actively um, with UH, K- um, Case, um, Cleveland Clinic, um, Kaiser, and some of these other um, health systems where they're like, hey, I'm interested to um, donate my time to help the community, and I'm willing to step up and do so. We've been working over the last several months in terms of construction on the health clinic, and during this process, a number of the providers and other health professionals have been meeting to provide their advice, suggestion. Mm -hmm. I mean, these folks are even willing to roll up their sleeves to help paint, put down tile, some of these (laughs) other things, um, because they really are interested in building this clinic from the ground up. Um, you know, there are also nurses that I want to kind of put, um, have give a shout out to. Mm-hmm. Um, the Filipino Nurses Association of Ohio has been tremendously supportive. Um, they've been active in terms of our committee work, um, in addition to the number of physicians that I had just mentioned. Okay. Um, you know, uh, I was at the Asia Services in Action Gala last year, and it looks like you guys do a lot more than just the health clinic that's coming up. Um, tell us a little bit about the farming initiative. Sure. I, you had a farmer who mm-hmm. actually, was it in Ohio City, or where did he actually have his farm? So um, the farmer that you're you're mentioning is part of our new American agricultural program, and the project is focused on developing um would-be farmer skills. Mm -hmm. And these are largely um, folks who are from developing countries. They're new Americans. They're immigrants and refugees that come to this area where um, their language, English language, is um, limited, Mm -hmm. but they have tremendous assets that they bring with them, especially in the agricultural area. And we wanted to provide a vehicle for them to to harness those skills and to... um, you know, move towards self-sufficiency where they're able to generate an income, be able to support their family, and also have self-pride. And so this project is really important because um, we are working to produce unique Asian produce mm-hmm. and vegetables that could be um, shared with the within the community to sustain them through um, food subsidies, but also to you know, market to the broader community, introduce them to different um, Asian produce that they've never experienced before. And as part of this project, we have our would-be farmers who are in training um, mm-hmm. actively um, man the farmers markets across the area, and, and we've been very successful in and and building that up. Um, every time we are, every season that we go out, um, we find more and more people interested um, in. Um, getting produce from us and they get very excited. Um, I just heard one story from one of our staff how, um, you know, they were running a little late to one of the far- their farmer's market stand and there was, uh, you know, several people waiting wow. um, for them to come and set up. So oh. I think that says oh, a lot. Okay. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Where are the farms? Do they garden in their backyard? Do you have a plot of land for them specifically? So we um, have a a number of different partnerships. We worked um, with the Kaiga Valley National Park and their homestead farm project. And so Mm -hmm. they've been very supportive in the first initial years of the the farm project that we've um, 
been doing. Um, and recently, we have um, partnered up with a farmer out in Medina, just off the border of Cuyahoga County, and um, the Schmitz Farm. And they've been very supportive um, in offering us um, land and other technical assistance to help us. Most recently, we just um, signed a commitment with the Cuyahoga um, farm, um, Cuyahoga Fair, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Cuyahoga Fair to utilize um, their <laughs> land on the Cuyahoga Fairgrounds, mm-hmm. um, which has access to water and other amenities that nice. allows us to process produce and vegetables. And so we're really excited about that partnership. Can you tell us about some of the vegetables that were grown? Uh, I remember there was like a, a kale-like vegetable called dragon's tongue. Yes. Yeah. I, there's um, <laughs> komatsuna. There is bitter melon. Mm-hmm. There is... Um, Chinese cucumber, um, Vietnamese basil, a lot of different unique things from all across the um, the Asian continent. Now, besides the local farmers markets, can we find the produce in the local Asian uh, grocery stores as well? Yeah, I think we're really fortunate in Asia Town area. We have a number of Asian grocery stores that carry a very wide selection of produce. Mm-hmm. And so for folks who are interested, when we are not out in the farmer's market off-season, um, do encourage you all to come down to Asia Town and visit the number of different markets that are available. Um, you can find resources as far as where those um, fa- uh, markets are um, on St. Clair Superior's Community Development Corporation website. Um, they have a directory of all these different businesses in this Asia Town area. And that's St. Clair Superior um, St. Clair Superior CDC.org. Um, St. Clair Superior.org. St. Clair Superior.org. Yeah. Okay, Great. there we go. <laughs> Thank you. We should probably all know that. <laughs> yeah. And um that's the other thing is that on on this show we talk a lot about a lot about food. I know Johnny's uh-huh. promised to make us some of those famous dumplings. <laughs> and then um Ashim talked a lot about the Indian cooking and then we had um Michael Fleming who used to be a chef talk about tapas with us. So Wonderful. Maybe after the break we can come back and uh, give a couple recipes out online for how you can incorporate some of these uh, Chinese agricultural foods that uh, people are growing right around Cleveland here. Um, so, you know, Michael, we've been talking about Asia Services in Action and what they've been doing here around uh, Asia Town. But tell us about yourself. Where are you from and why Cleveland? Why did you come to Cleveland? Yeah, I think... Um it's my story is very interesting. I you know came to the Cleveland area in 2002, and it's partly um, out of connecting with um, you know a significant other, and then also um, having a business opportunity, job opportunity in this area. And so it's been um, very rewarding. The first few years were very tough. Um, that is, is that the adjustment was very difficult. I was coming from the West Coast. And um, certainly um, Cleveland and this area is not necessarily um, Seattle. So, um, but that adjustment after a few years, I've become, you know, became more comfortable and I I settled in this area. And um, I think the thing that really helped me is that I was able to connect with um, folks that um, ha- were of like mind, who were interested, who were passionate about the Asian community here. Mm-hmm. And one of those um, groups is the, the Cleveland Asian Festival and the committee that's been working on, um, you know, putting on a successful event every year. And so we're, um, I've been very fortunate to connect with folks um, 
that have been very supportive, um, also that I can contribute in, in meaningful ways. Um, also, the work with Asian Services in Action has been very meaningful. It's been um, per- personally very gratifying, but also to know that the um, the work that I do personally has an impact on the broader community in, in helping them and ultimately leads towards um, you know, better health and well-being for the, the broader population. So what's the biggest difference, would you say, between Seattle and Cleveland? Um, I would say that um, <laughs> weather is... Um, weather? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, actually, I, I enjoy, I'm enjoying the four seasons here in northeastern Ohio. Um, I look forward to the first snowfall. I know that right now um, <laughs> folks are kind of like just aching for it to be over with, but... Um, I enjoy the four seasons. I, I actually am. Um, what I've been told is, um, you know, while overall, and this might be surprising statistics, but um, overall, there's greater amount of rainfall here in northeastern Ohio compared to Seattle. Really, most folks think Seattle is like very rainy. Yeah. But the the major difference is that you have more overcast days of drizzle rain in Seattle, where here it may be like a torrential down um, rain pour, <laughs> and then it's over and it's nice and sunny, which I can live with. I think that's great. It's better. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Seattle, I've never been to there. Uh, what you said it was overcast with drizzles. I thought they had a uh, four seasons year round as well. No, it's no? very rare for it to snow in Seattle. Um, over the last several years, you know, folks can blame it on global warming, but they've had <laughs> some interesting summers. But typically, I mean, inter- interesting winters. But typically, um, during the winter time, it's just very drizzly and very cold. So wow. So no snow boots, uh, no summer flowers or anything like that. It's just the one season all year round. Yep. Wow. So, yeah, I can see why you like Cleveland better. <laughs> you know what? I, I heard Seattle is actually a very wonderful place to be. Yeah. Um, I had a, a coworker who moved out there a couple of years ago, and she loves it. Is there like an, uh, I don't know, she, she loves the underground music, and I have no idea what she's talking about. Do you, by any chance? <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm so removed from that. <laughs> You know, I'm you know not in my 20s anymore, so <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm a bit removed from that. So I don't know. I mean, if you were to ask me about grunge, maybe I could talk tell you about that. <laughs> but that just is very outdated. Well, you can talk talk about grunge. I, I'm actually it's new to me. What? what <laughs> That's our joke. No. Oh well, I actually know nothing about grunge. You please enlighten me. Well, the only thing I can tell you about grunge, to the limited knowledge that I have, is that. Um, Kurt Cobain, who's part of Nirvana, mm-hmm. is originally from the small lumber town that my parents live. Oh, really? And there was one time where his mother had come into my parents' grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> so, <Really? laughs> that's the extent of my that's grunge awesome. knowledge. So. Uh, but I'm not, not actually y- so young that I don't know who Kurt Cobain is for those of our listeners out there. Johnny's shaking his head at me. I have no idea who he is. Kurt Cobain? Really? Yeah. Courtney Love? No, really? Wow, you are old. <laughs> He's giving me a very dirty look right now. So <laughs> you got lucky that I, mean, I don't have much voice to talk about. <laughs> Actually, um, Johnny and I are both sick, and uh, we think it's because Lisa Wong, a good friend of ours, and also on the committee for the Cleveland Asian Festival. Um, she was sick during our last meeting, so I think she gave it to us. <laughs> and I am trying to avoid it yes. with plenty of Purell here in the studio. Yes, so. and he's sitting a good distance away from us as well, yes. so <laughs> Michael's being smart about it. But speaking of the Cleveland Asian Festival, it is May 18th and May 19th of this year, 
And uh, Lisa Wong will be coming in soon to uh, talk about the festival. She's um, she she's the chair of the vendor committee, so she'll be able to talk more about uh, the different vendors that are coming in, different kinds of foods, what restaurants are coming in, you know, because we love food so much. And uh, she'll talk about the kind of shops that are going to be there, what to expect, and if there's an overall theme this year, and whatnot. And um, another event that's coming up on April 18th of this year, 2013, is Culture Shock. Now, Culture Shock is a multicultural fair, and uh, it is on a Thursday this year. It's from 12.30 to 4 p.m., again, April 18th. It's at the Tri-C West Campus. The address is 11,000 Pleasant Valley Road, Parma. It's in the North Galleria. And uh, the reason that we are so happy to talk about this is that the guest speaker is... Johnny, you're supposed to say me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I turned the volume off here so I don't have to cough into it. That's true. <laughs> so Johnny Wu will be the guest speaker, so be sure to be there. Again, that's Wednesday. I'm sorry, Thursday. It's Thursday, April 18th, 2013, from 12.30 p.m. to 4 o'clock p.m. There'll be cultural presentations, interactive activities, ethnic dance, henna. There will be an earth balloon, uh, community resources, social agency services, literacy ideas, and very much more. We're going to take a short break and play you some music by Arya Kumar, who was on the show with us uh, last week, I believe. And we'll be back and we'll talk more about Michael and Asia Services in Action.
And that was a song composed by Arya Kumar, who is on the show with us with his lovely wife, Safna. And uh, we're back here in the studio uh, with Asia Town Voice. Asia Town Voice is an hour-long nonprofit program on WJCU's 88.7 FM. We're on every Sunday from 7 to 8 p.m. This hour-long program provides an inside look at Asian Pacific Americans' community, their culture, education, and events going on in Northeast Ohio. Asia Town Voice is volunteer-based, and we hope that listeners will enjoy our program and give their support to WJCU. This way, we can continue to provide many voices with many choices to you. And we're here with Michael Vune with uh, Asia Services in Action. And uh, we were just talking about some of the services that uh, Asia Services in Action provided. And, um, Michael, can you talk a little bit on the difference uh, between uh, immigrants and uh, refugees? Because I know that's that's the group of people that you cater to. Yeah, Um I think this is a really important distinction, I think, for a lot of folks out in the listening um, audience might not know, is that there is a difference between refugees and immigrants. Um, Immigrants typically come to the United States, um, and they do it voluntarily, and often it's for job opportunities, educational opportunities, family reunification. In the instance with refugees who come to this area, it's a very unique situation. They are they are leaving their war-torn home countries where they're being persecuted, are facing um, rape, murder, and so forth, that they're leaving, this er- leaving their home country and fleeing. And in many instances, these refugees um, find themselves for many years in this place of limbo called refugee camps, which are often on the borders um, of their homeland in another country, and where they spend many years there. The United Nations High Commission on Refugees works with these um, displaced individuals and works with different countries all around the world to determine who is willing to take the the refugees in um, and provide support to them. So the United States is one of the countries that does um, provide a resettlement area for the refugee population. Um, And so the United United States works with the United Nations High Commission on Refugees. And then within the U.S., it's the State Department that works um, under the guidance of the president um, to determine the number of refugees that will be resettled in this area. And then from there, the State Department works with national organizations called voluntary agencies. And I believe there are over eight organizations um, that at the national level determine among themselves which um, organization will take on the responsibility of resettling. And from, and from there, um, these national organizations have branch um, divisions um, all across the country and have offices where they then negotiate how many in each of these areas and regions where the refugees resettle. The most recent trend has been in the last few years, and actually it's, actu- it's winding down, but um, there's been a growth of Bhutanese and Burmese refugees that are coming to this country. Mm-hmm. Um, annually in the northeastern Ohio and the Cleveland area, we see in the area of six to 800 refugees that come to this area. And, and that also includes secondary migrants, and those are individuals who originally resettle in other parts of the country mm-hmm. but want to reunite with family who live in the Cleveland area. And so they moved to this area. And so 
The refugees have very unique challenges, and our organization, Asian Services in Action, um, serve those communities in terms of meeting their basic needs. Um, often these refugees come with very limited skills. Um, they come with limited English, um, and, and making that transition is often very challenging. So what we do is to provide support to them to ensure that they make um, a successful path towards self-sufficiency. Uh, this may include English classes, help them with um, improving their English skills, looking at job skills development so they have marketable skills that they could transfer into a factory setting or retail setting or other entry-level opportunities. We also work with their families to ensure that if they have um, concerns around health, um, have issues around um, food insecurity, um, and also housing, we help them to find assistance so that they can stabilize themselves and so that their adults, um, members of their families, can find jobs to eventually help their families. And that's six to eight hundred a year. Six to eight hundred a year. Wow. Our organization is pretty unique in that we not only serve refugees, but we also serve immigrants and and the general community, anyone who's in need. Um, annually, our organization touches the lives of over ten thousand four hundred people, and our services are broad based. We um, focus on children, youth, and family. We work with the aging. We offer healthcare services. We also um, work with different institutions like hospitals, courts, to provide interpreting and translation services. We work with organizations and communities to provide cultural outreach. So our services are pretty broad-based because we recognize that individuals who come to our office for services um, may have other needs around housing. They may need assistance for their children to get additional tutoring. So we... Um, practice the thing called the no wrong door approach okay. where we ensure that we are able to provide a set of wraparound services to support the individual towards um, moving towards self-sufficiency. Now, is there a demographic uh, for the immigrants or is it just, I mean, yeah. I, I know sometimes it's the older mm -hmm. um, parents that come over and stay with the, you know, the a younger couple. Well, it's um, it's interesting that you mentioned that um, last year, late last year, I believe in October, um, our organization worked with other community organizations in this area to organize a press release event for the Asian American Midwest Demographic Profile Launch. This was in partnership with the National Asian American Justice Center where we um, issued a report um, talking about the growth of our communities here in the Northeastern Ohio area. The report, which is based on census data, Bureau of Labor Statistics, and other key um, data sources, revealed that the Asian community here is the fastest growing, um, even rivals the Hispanic Latino community. Mm -hmm. um, in this area, we have over 67,000 people who are identified as Asian American and over 2,800 who are identified as Pacific Islanders. And within that segment, we have the largest segment of ethnic groups include Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, and Filipino. What about the Indian community? And, and I'm sorry, yeah, correct, yeah. thank you for correcting me. Asian Indians are actually the largest population, ethnic population here in mm -hmm. Northeastern Ohio. Yeah, I do remember. I, I was actually at the, uh, the, the, the press release. Yes. I just, I was sick that day too. <laughs> I kind of hide in the back whenever I'm sick. So how can everybody, anyone can get all this information? 
Are they in your website? Yeah, you can visit our website, which is www.asiaohio.org. And within our website, there are, there's a tremendous amount of resources um, in many of those drop-down boxes where you can have access to data around the growing Asian population. We have a directory of different businesses. We have information about our detailed information about our services and our programs. Okay, so uh, Michael, we've been talking about the uh, refugees um, and the differences between immigrants, and uh, I've actually seen a couple photos where you've been at the White House with your mom, nonetheless. Can you talk a little bit about the immigration reform that's coming around, or at least what might be coming around? Yeah. Um, So I think what you're referencing is just um, my visits to Washington, D.C., and I've been very fortunate to have an opportunity to be a representative for Ohio's Asian communities on different issues. And I think one of the key issues that is emerging as a, as a topic um, these days is around immigration reform. Um, there's been efforts earlier on in the mid-2000 to address comprehensive immigration reform. And unfortunately, at that time, there was not enough political will to really develop a a strong, um, cohesive immigration reform package. But I think that the conversation is being reactivated recently because of, um, you know, political support from the Gang of Eight um, at the federal level. And this um, is a very interesting um, situation because um, what the what the goals of the comprehensive immigration reform is that there are many components of it that's just not completely clarified. And so one of the areas that affect our communities is the family um, immigration policy. Um, so our communities, especially those like in our Filipino community and also in our Korean communities, among others, I think the Asian Indian communities are affected by this as well. But there is a very long backlog in the um, petitions of those who are trying to reunite with families. And these backlogs go 10, 20 years. And um, there is an urgency in terms of many family members here in the United States who are lawfully here, who are going through the process through um, the Department of um, USCIS, United States Citizenship and Integration Services, to bring their loved ones to this country so that they can unite. And so the current situation with family immigration is is that it is keeping these individuals um, apart from their loved ones. And and I think in terms of a humane perspective, um, it just is a very sad situation, and I think it needs to be um, one that um, that the Congress and others in, at the national level should address. The uh, other important thing to really highlight is that you know, family reunification is an important aspect of um, economic development in this area. And part of the reason is that um, our communities, our Asian communities, have a very high disproportionate, disproportionate portion of the members who run small businesses. And in many of these small businesses, they, you know, rely on their relatives and their siblings to help support the operation of the business. Mm -hmm. So as from an economic economic development perspective, you know, you know, this is a very important issue that I think that we need to address. So, um, you know, I hope that, um, you know, 
by providing this information, people will be informed and can also look further into what the major issues are with regards to immigration. Now, is there a website where we can go to for this information? So there's a, a lot of different uh, options that are available. And if, if they are interested, we've been posting different resources around the debate, um, providing educational information um, that is, again, available on our website at www.asiaohio.org. A-S-I-A-O-H-I-O dot O-R-G? Correct. Right. We just have to spell that out sometimes. <laughs> um, so... You know, we've talked a lot about Asia and, and uh, a lot of the things that they've done. Are there any new projects on the horizon? You know, there's always a need out in the community that we're aiming to address. And, um, you know, we've been exploring a number of different areas. And some of the things that I could share with you now is our efforts in terms of early childhood development. Mm-hmm. And um, we have communities that are have very young children, and one of the major concerns that I think in the broader community um, has is that we need to prepare our young ones to become kindergarten ready. And they think that's really important because that early development is crucial to the success of um, that individual, that young one, when they grow up and become an adult. So to that end, we've um, been part of a project where we've been providing early childhood education and support um, to caregivers and to young youngins um, to develop their social, emotional, and cognitive skills. So that's been a very important project of ours. The other important thing that we do offer is um, domestic violence and sexual assault services. Um, one of the things that we've um, seen more and more is that our communities um, are silent victims of domestic violence, and partly because there aren't really resources or places to go where that, it, that, that speak their language, that understand their culture. And so our organization since 2009 have, has been providing domestic violence support where we have um, bilingual individuals in our office as well as an immigration attorney because in some instances um, these victims are um, brides, foreign brides that have come to this area with limited English proficiency and um, they are facing spousal abuse and don't have anywhere to turn to. So we then, you know, it brings into question the immigration issue. So we work with those folks as well. Um, We do this project in partnership with um, a number of wonderful ethnic-based Asian organizations. We've been working with the um, the Chinese Association, Chinese Women's Association of Greater Cleveland. We work with a Asian Muslim organization called Salam Cleveland. Mm-hmm. In the past, we've worked with an informal group of Japanese Americans who were addressing issues of domestic violence, as well as the Korean Association and the Vietnamese associations. So these kinds of partnerships are really critical to the way this domestic violence service project works, but also in the way that Asia delivers the programs. We rely very heavily in in these relationships, and we've built those relationships with these smaller ethnic communities and their organizations because they are important key gatekeepers to the community. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that the people in need go to first before they come to our organization. Right. And um, speaking of relationships within uh, the, you know, the organizations and the city, uh, what do you think will happen with, you know, uh, in terms of Asia and uh, with the help that it's able to provide or the help that it might receive um, due to the redistribution of the wards coming up? 
Yeah, it's a very um, unfortunate situation because um, Councilman Jeff Johnson, who has been um, our city councilman here in this um, area in the Cleveland neighborhood of Asia Town, um, with the redistricting, he will no longer be um, the steward of our community. Mm-hmm. And I think the the, the the sad part of that is that we have invested a tremendous amount of time and energy to educate our council representative. And for us to have to restart that process with a new um, council representative, city council representative, it would mean a tremendous step back um, in terms of the um, progress we were making. And this um, addresses kind of a broader challenge, I think, and this is um, something that I've been very concerned about, is that the city of Cleveland, um, in terms of its um, policymakers, developers, and others in the in the private sector, have done a very good job of um, developing some of the most challenging parts of the neighborhood. I mean, the city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, seeing in terms of the redevelopment of, <coughs> and efforts in Ohio City, the Gordon um, Shore, Shoreway District area, as well as out in um, Tremont. But I think historically, what we find is that. Um, you know, there's been very limited effort or um, work done here in the in the Asia Town area when there's been tremendous growth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, the recent census indicated that while the city saw a net decrease in the population, the only areas and only ethnic communities that actually showed an increase was the Asian population, and I think that wow. says a lot about the importance of the Asia Town community, and I think it's important for our policymakers, our funders, our other community leaders, and private sector to really begin to think about investment in this community. And in the absence of that, I think we have seen tremendous um, organic um, growth within this neighborhood, partly from individuals from the Asian population. And they've been, they've taken the lead in terms of filling the void that has not been filled by others. And um, it, it's funny that you bring that up because a couple weeks ago, uh, I think about a month or so ago, uh, Jennifer Liu and I, Johnny was on vacation during that time. He was in Florida. But Jennifer Liu and I, we, we actually read off a list of, uh, of Asian stereotypes. And one of them was... Um, about how Asians are generally more laid back and they're not as aggressive when it comes to getting things done. Do you agree with that stereotype? Oh, absolutely not. And I think just um, the perception that that it that that is out there about the community, I think it it's challenging. So um, it is the responsibility of our communities to become uh, more assertive about some of the things that we need. And I think. Um, in this instance with the redistricting of the wards, I think it's really important with the new councilman coming in that we really um, connect with him deeply and to re- to make sure he understands our needs mm-hmm. and to hold him accountable and to have him responsive. Okay. Is there anything that our listeners could do, perhaps write letters? Okay. Um, I think it's important that the broader community understands just in terms of in any situation, any kind of redistricting, political um, redistricting, um, it does impact communities that have invested time and energy in building up that that relationship with, the, with that um, council person. So I think that it's, it's important that, um, you know, the, the listening community knows that we need to continue to hold our folks accountable in politics Mm -hmm. and make sure that um, they understand the unique issues issues of our communities. Maybe one of you guys can run for a council. Uh, You're kidding. Thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think well, that job what, is very difficult. Am I going to have time every uh, to do this uh, radio show then? Yeah, you, you <laughs> can you can work full time to get paid to right. do this. This will be part of community outreach. I'm already you know getting sick so regularly. I think I need more time to relax. Right? You know, we're always joking about taking a vacation. Maybe we should definitely schedule one coming up. Um, so speaking of these stereotypes, Michael, uh, if I'm correct, you come from a Korean American background. Now, growing up in Seattle, did you face any discrimination? You know, um, it's interesting as as a child. You know, when you f- see discrimination, you don't really call it discrimination. It's mm-hmm. more kind of teasing. Ah. Um, but as you grow older, and if you look back in retrospect, you go, "Wow, it's pretty bad." But um, yes, obviously, I um, went through the same issues that others have. I grew up in a primarily um, white suburban neighborhood outside of Seattle, um, where there was a handful of Koreans and also a very limited number of African Americans um, and other minorities. And um, you know, obviously, those um, kind of defamatory comments about your eyes and yeah. and um, I'm Korean, but they think I'm Chinese or Japanese and. Um, and that was um, a very interesting period. But again, as, as a young person, um, you, you're just so innocent. You don't think about those within the context of right. racism. Um, so kind of fast forwarding forward here in terms of the, you know, what I've noticed in, in my um, you know, moving to the Cleveland area from Seattle. Um, you know, that is an interesting part of that transition in terms of the perceptions uh, around um, identity and so forth. Uh, you know, one of the things that kind of still sticks with me is that in our involvement, in my involvement with the Cleveland Asian Festival, that um, those folks who are Asian that are coming to our air, to the festival are just very surprised that there's so many, there's such diversity. Right. And then the, on top of that, it's like <laughs> you hear comments like, I have never met a Lao person or I have never met a Vietnamese <laughs> person. And the only food that I've eaten is the Chinese tech takeout at, a, at the local restaurant. So right. I think that the festival does a really wonderful job. And I know that um, there's a, a, a speaker scheduled later to talk about the festival more in detail. But I think it's been a very important tool for educating the broader community and creating this cross-cultural um, exchange. So you would say that Cleveland... Um I, I guess this, I got to wa- watch out how I phrase this. Cleveland shows less discrimination in Seattle? You know, I don't think that's the way I want to say the question. No, but no, <laughs> no. I think what the situation is is that, you know, certainly in the Seattle area, there's greater numbers now of Asian Americans. In some instances in, in parts of the city in Seattle, they're, you know, they're over 15 20%. Um, whereas here, overall, Asian population accounts for around 1% to 2% of the population here. So I think it's just a matter of limited exposure. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really about if we can offer opportunities for greater frequency of interactions that I think people are going to feel more comfortable. So, All right. So as we're nearing the end of our show, of course, we have to talk about food. <laughs> So uh, we've already established some of our favorite meals, but Michael, what is your favorite Asian dish? You know, if 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 you ask any Asian, they, I think they should be saying one thing only, uh-huh. and that's because it's a very cultural, it's a staple part of our diet, and uh-huh. that's kimchi. Kimchi, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's wonderful. Now, does your mom make her own kimchi? She does, and it's it's great. Um, so my mom, my mother lives in Washington State, and 
she does this really interesting thing every now and then where she'll pack a bunch of food in these frozen Ziploc bags and then yeah. mail it to me. Really? Yeah, and <laughs> That's awesome. One of them. So it's, it's like home-cooked meal via right. airmail. So. Right. <laughs> well, for the listeners, as promised, I have a simple, quick kimchi recipe. So get out your pens and pencils. Do, 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 do. And for most of our listeners, you could probably find most of these ingredients at one of the uh, Asia f- uh, grocery stores, which you can find at asiaohio.org, A-S-I-A-O-H-I-O dot O-R-G. And if you're ready for this recipe, you're going to need one head of Chinese cabbage, approximately two and a half to three pounds. Sometimes it'll be known as uh, Napa cabbage. And you're also going to need one medium Asian radish, also known as a daikon radish. You're going to need about a quarter cup of coarse sea salt. You're going to need about four strips of scallions cut into one inch pieces. Or you could just be like me and dice it up till tiniest pieces possible. You would want four garlic cloves minced. Next, you'll want two tablespoons of fresh ginger, also minced followed by two tablespoons of chili powder and then one t- teaspoon of sesame seeds. That's that's optional because we know there's probably allergies out there. So let me repeat that quickly. It's one head of Chinese cabbage, also known as Napa cabbage, one medium-sized Asian radish or daikon radish, quarter cup of coarse sea salt, four scallions, four garlic cloves, two tablespoons of fresh ginger, two tablespoons of chili powder, and optional one teaspoon of sesame seeds. So to prepare, oh, I'm sorry, you also need water. Tap water is fine. (laughs) To prepare, you want to dissolve the salt in one cup of water and set it aside. Thoroughly wash the cabbage, then cut into two-inch lengths. You can uh, peel the Asian radish and half it lengthwise, then half it lengthwise again, and then slice it into quarter-inch squares or half-inch squares. Pretty much just uh, dice the radish and uh, chop up the cabbage. So place the cabbage and the radish in a large bowl and pour the salt water over them. You want to let it soak overnight or at least for five hours. After soaking it, drain the vegetables but retain all the salt water. So you want to drain the salt water into a different container. Add the scallions, garlic, ginger, chili powder, and optional sesame seeds. Mix all the vegetables thoroughly by hand using gloves because sometimes if you have cuts on your hand, the chili powder might sting. You want to pack all of that into a large jar, about two quarts size, and then pour the salt water over the mixture. Leave an inch of space at the top of the jar and cover lightly. You will want it to sit for two to three days, depending on how fermented you like your kimchi. Approximately four to five days would be good. After you refrigerate it, you can eat it. And I know a lot of the One of the popular ways, the simplest ways, is just to have rice porridge in the morning and just eat a little bit of kimchi. I know that um, my mom, this is kind of like an Asian pickling process, my mom would always pickle the long string beans, the thin ones, I don't know what they're called, really, but uh, we would tie them in a knot and stick them in the jar, and she also poured a little bit of my dad's rice liquor in there, and I think it's to to prevent certain bacteria from growing, so it tastes a little bit different. You don't taste the alcohol at all. It completely evaporates over time, but just added with the salt and the other ingredients that she put in there, like the ginger, it uh, it tasted very good. Mm. So, um, Johnny, is there any uh, secret Taiwanese form of uh, pickling or kimchi? 
variants? I really don't know. You don't know? I don't eat kimchi at all. I'm here with guys. I'm, I'm a lady. I like to cook. So, <laughs> Michael, do you cook anything at home? You know, I'm I'm a big stir fry person. So yeah. I, you know, and stir fry is really easy to make. So whatever kinds of greens that I have available, I'll put it in the, <laughs> the you know put it in the wok and. Add some garlic and um, sesame oil or peanut oil, and um, take one of those great sauces that are out there. That's either you know Chinese or Korean, and just put it in there and just make a very quick stir fry. All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take another quick break. We're going to play another tune by Arya Kumar, and uh, if anybody has any questions, comments, or if you want some more food recipes or send in some food recipes, you can email us via WJCU on their website. Or you can contact us via asiatownvoice at gmail.com. That's all one word. It's A-S-I-A-T-O-W-N-V-O-I-C-E at gmail.com. And here we are with Arya Song.
Once again, we are back with Asia Town Voice. Uh, we want to thank Michael Bune for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Actually, am I saying your last name correctly? Yes, you are. Really? Yeah. Okay, because I wasn't sure. Is it Bjorn or Bune? It's it's the first. Bjorn. Yeah. Bjorn. I'll remember that. And Johnny, even though he was quiet today, I will ring the bell for his sake. Thank you. That's Alex's bell. He started it off with a joke. And we want to thank everybody again for listening to Asia Town Voice. Please tune in next Sunday. We're going to have Jason Wen from WKYC. Mm-hmm. He will be here to talk about a variety of different things with us. And then after that, we will have Lisa Wong talking about the Cleveland Asian Festival and which vendors to expect. And again, if you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, feel free to email us at asiatownvoice at gmail.com or you can go to the WJCU website, which Johnny is wjcu.org, right? Okay. He, he doesn't want to talk. He's just nodding. He's just, yeah, he's hacking away over there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> There's a separation. Michael's very nervous because he's not sick. And I actually, um, I work in a microbiology division. And uh, I know for a fact it's the five days before that, that is, you're the most contagious. And Johnny and I, I think we have very different colds. And we're all towards the end of it. So yeah. you should be fine. But enough but, for But him. if Michael gets sick this, this next couple he's of days, yell at us. we'll be in trouble. <laughs> all right. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. And we will catch you next week.